Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, wishing a happy Veterans Day to all who served. And hello to you, Scott. You and I survived another football Sunday with your Cowboys playing my Giants. Those are two teams going in different directions. Enough said. <laughs> well, we'll leave all that on the field, Ben. Let me add my thanks to all our veterans. And for some of our listeners, best wishes for a good run at the Dubai Air Show this week. In honor of the air show and the large orders of airplanes being announced, we're going to talk about a huge issue in the airline business that, I think, doesn't get nearly enough attention. I want to talk about new airplanes, Ben, not the kind being ordered now, but the next generation. What next generation, you might ask? That's the point. More specifically, why isn't Boeing designing a single-aisle 737-757 replacement? I think the reluctance to develop a new airplane is going to go down as one of the great business mistakes of all time, Ben. It's a huge issue for airlines, for travelers, for the environment, and for our nation. Boeing is not just an airplane maker. It has been an exporter of American manufacturing might around the world. But really, no more. Let's talk about it in detail, Ben. Scott, this is an important topic. It's so expensive to develop a new airplane. And Boeing has had some tough times financially. In that business, sometimes you have to take big risks for big rewards. I'm glad I'm not the one making this call, but I'm looking forward to talking about it and from hearing from our listeners, too. Yep, me too. But first, let's talk about some news of the past week. Another week and another airline tweaking its loyalty program for next year. And we say loyalty program rather than frequent flyer program because they really aren't about frequent flying anymore. They're more about credit card tie-ins, being loyal to a credit card and maybe flying from time to time on that airline. Credit card companies buy billions and billions of dollars worth of miles and points to give to customers as rewards for their spending with the credit card. Selling points and miles has been a lot more lucrative for airlines than transporting people from point A to point B. No further proof needed than the changes United announced last week. With a not-so-veiled swipe at Delta Airlines, United announced it wasn't making any changes to its elite-level qualification requirements next year. But it is making changes to credit card benefits, enhancing them for consumers, not cutting them. Card spending will deliver more premier qualifying points, 
needed for elite level qualification. In other words, you can get to higher elite status just by using your United co-branded credit cards more often. Boom, that's it, the only change. Being first out of the wallet is key for credit card companies and getting higher levels of elite status will keep you swiping with that airline credit card. United will swell its elite ranks in order to increase profits from the sale of points, whether you fly or not. It would seem to indicate, Ben, that business travel remains depressed and fewer people are earning elite status the old-fashioned way by buying international business class seats or flying all over the place for business. Credit card is becoming more important than the airline seat, right? In many ways, this is a change that started during COVID when people could spend on their card even when they couldn't travel. And you've seen all the airlines give more credit to the card spend. Very interesting, especially, Scott, in light of potential legislation that would cut the interchange rate and take away all of this. I don't think that's likely, but in a future show, we should talk about that risk also. Yeah, we should. It's it's interesting. Um, when I was in Washington, and I'm sure you've seen them all over town, there are signs at Union Station and other places uh, about uh, don't take away my frequent flyer points. And, uh, and so the, the, uh, the legislation is interesting. It's a, it's a different setup in Europe. Um, uh, and so, yeah, a lot to talk about there. And by the way, on business travel, I did an event in Ontario, California on November 1st with Ed Bastian, the Delta CEO. It was a luncheon for the Ontario airport, about 500 people there. It was a great event. And Ed made the point, that business travel remains about 80% of 2019 levels, but the economy is now about 20% bigger than it was in 2019. So when we say business travel is only 80% recovered, that's really overestimating the shortfall. Normal would be 120% of 2019. The continued reduction of business travel is worse than we often think. And that would seem to be reflected in the United move. On another topic, I wanted to mention a Wall Street Journal story on how Sioux City, Iowa is now embracing its airport code, which is SUX. After complaints and efforts to get the code for Sioux Gateway Airport changed, the community now has decided to own it. There's a commercial cleaning company called Cleaning Sucks, a pooper scooper service called Poo Sucks. Rent Sucks is a leasing company. Art Sucks is a gallery downtown. There's even a Sucks Pride Festival in June. Sioux City certainly isn't the only community to go all in on its airport code. You see it on NBA uniforms, right? OKC or PHX or ATL. Much like area codes, the three-letter identifiers have become sources of identity except in Singapore, where the code is S-I-N. Fresno probably doesn't want to be widely known as FAT. I did a story back in 2006 about the fun the FAA has with names for intersections, waypoints, and airports. An approach in Nashville has waypoints on the chart 
of Picken, Grenin, and Hee-Haw. By international rule, these have to be five-letter identifiers. So Picken is P-I-C-K-N, Grinnin is G-R-N-I-N, and Hee-Haw is H-E-H-A-W. An approach for runway four left at Newark Liberty International Airport has a final approach fix of how ya. Four right has doin'. Louisiana has rhythm. Kentucky has bourbon. Massachusetts has Bosox. Kansas City, Missouri has spicy barbecue and ribs. Just northeast of DFW Airport is the Herbs intersection, H-U-R-B-S, which Southwest Airlines pilots cross going over into Love Field. One little curiosity, American Airlines' new headquarters has the DFW sectional blown up on a wall behind the reception desk at the front entrance. And there's Herbs, which honors competitor Herb Kelleher. This is all intentional and not just for fun. The FAA says it wants identifiers that are memorable and easy to understand over radio transmission. You don't want controllers spelling out five letters of waypoint names, though it certainly does happen. But if you're told to cross Hold'em at 5,000 feet near Las Vegas, you really don't need to know what the exact spelling is. You can find that on the chart easily and pick it out easily on a flight plan or flight management computer. My favorite airport identifier, by the way, Ben, is for Ciampino Airport outside Rome. It's CIA. And I thought it was pretty cool to get a CIA tag on my bag. Ben, do you have any favorites? What a great list. And I'm sure many of our listeners are chuckling having flown through many of these fixes. That's really cool. And Herb, I bet, with all the accolades he had in his life, all deserved, I bet he would say one of the best was having a fix named after him. You know, I've only flown little planes in and around the Northeast, and never came across really interesting fixes like these. Like around Syracuse, I don't know if there's a clouds fix (laughs) or rain fix, (laughs) which would be great. (laughs) Or around Scranton now, they could have a Biden fix. Well, I don't know about Biden fix. There is a Biden rest stop on uh, I-95, but that's that's on the ground. Bill Clinton got a fix in his hometown, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and they named it Socks after his cat. You know, I've stopped at that Joe Biden rest stop. Yeah. <laughs> and this is going to make some lizards mad and others chuckle. But on the last trip... We stopped there to get gas, and there was no gas. (laughs) (laughs) My wife and I thought that was very funny. Yeah, very very funny. You're soon to appear in a political advertisement. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of advertisements, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Dewhop which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dewhop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience 
with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue and lower costs and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank Pratt and Whitney. At Pratt and Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt and Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they're committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Brad Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Well, Ben, this week's guest is non-existent. It's a new single-aisle airplane from Boeing. The 737 was designed in the 1960s and remains the workhorse for so many airlines. It's gotten new wings and engines a couple of times, and the MAX line, the latest generation, is a whole lot different from the original 737-100 and-200. But height and width of the cabin haven't changed, and people were smaller 60 years ago. The 757 had the same cross-section, but was longer and offered more range. It's no longer being made, and Boeing essentially has no replacement. Airbus does, the long-range versions of the A321. They're selling really well. Airbus has more than 4,000 orders for the new engine option version of the A321. And Airbus may be pressuring Boeing on the smaller end of the 737 market soon as well. Airbus is expected to launch a larger version of the A220, pushing it closer to 150 seats. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun has said that Boeing is waiting for new engines that can deliver 20% fuel savings or more and 20% lower emissions. That's a tall order, unprecedented really in modern aircraft development. Boeing is involved in research with NASA on a trust wing aircraft that seems to have good potential. But for the most part, it's been wait and see for Boeing while Airbus is outselling it. You can easily argue that the 737 MAX debacle that led to two crashes and the quality glitches with the 737 MAX and the 787, not to mention the inability so far to get the MAX 7 and MAX 10 certified or to get the 777X certified, are slowing things up for Boeing. All that is plenty to work on without launching a new program. There's also a concern about Boeing's balance sheet, which does have more than $13 billion in cash right now, but developing a new airplane would cost a whole lot more, maybe $20 billion or more. And conservative Boeing hasn't been willing to mortgage the company for a future airplane yet. There was an interesting column recently from Jens Flotow in Aviation Week. He noted that Boeing has said investors would be irked if it started development on a new narrow-body airliner. 
Yet Bank of America senior aerospace and defense analyst Ron Epstein, who is a prominent Wall Street veteran, issued a detailed note saying just the opposite. Wait and see is making things worse for Boeing, Epstein said, and a new aircraft is in the best interest of Boeing and investors. Quote, Boeing continues to ride the coattails of its past glory, he said rather pointedly. In our view, he writes, while the longevity of the 737 is impressive, the aircraft is now a bit of an anachronism. Operating the aircraft is like driving around in a 1968 Chevy Impala with a semi-modern dashboard. He also noted it's the only currently manufactured commercial aircraft without fly-by-wire controls. Without a new airplane, Boeing will be nothing more than a distant second to Airbus. Last year, Boeing delivered 480 airplanes, and Airbus delivered 40% more, 676 jets. This year will be the fifth straight year that Airbus delivers more airplanes than Boeing. It didn't used to be that way. Boeing used to dominate. Now Boeing is Avis, but seemingly not trying harder. A distant number two is not really a good place to be. Customers will demand bigger discounts to buy your airplanes over the market leader. Suppliers may be less willing to give you discounts as good as higher volume Airbus will get. Sure, you'll still sell lots of airplanes because you have a large base out there, a well-known name, delivery positions that the number one maker maybe can't offer because it is sold out. Epstein also argues that a new airplane would be much, much more efficient, perhaps surpassing Calhoun's 20 to 30% threshold easily. Also beating the drum for a new airplane is analyst Richard Abalafia, who understands the airplane market as well as anybody. He argues that Boeing shouldn't be waiting for a huge technology breakthrough. It rarely happens. And the airplane business is a low-margin business. A 15% to 20% improvement is game-changing for new orders. Plus, it doesn't have to all come at once. Improvements and breakthroughs are continuous over the life cycle of an aircraft program. The 737 entered service in 1968, and so in 10 years, it will be eligible for Medicare. I say it's time for retirement, Ben. Developing a new airplane will take seven or eight years. It's time for Boeing to get going. Wow, Scott, this is a great analysis, and I agree with your core point. You know, wait and see is really a chicken and egg thing. What's the incentive for an engine manufacturer to go through all the R&D for a new engine for a plane that isn't even committed yet? In some sense, you have to have the plane to get the engine manufacturer to get their engineers cranking. Also, the world is moving to bigger overall cabins, so the 180-seat space is becoming more popular, not less popular. Similarly, with Airbus pushing the 220 up to close to 150, that is going to take away this A319 also in addition to a lot of 
737. I hate to say this, Scott, but you look at an airport and you see the 73 and it just looks old. Yeah. It's like driving on the road and seeing a classic old car. In some ways you think, wow, that's cool that that car is still driving. But then you realize how much fuel is probably burning, how much junk is coming out of its tailpipe and such. You know, it's not just new shells to match the 757. There's also a company called Jet Zero building what they call a blended wing product. This is where the wing and the body are like one surface. This is fascinating. It promises amazing efficiency from where we are today, but also creates real interesting options for what the thing could look like inside with lots of space, not just a tube. Barry Eccleston, a guest of the show, is a board member at Jet Zero, and he'll be coming on the show soon to tell us all about this. It's really fascinating, but Jet Zero is not Boeing, so it gets to your point. Where is one of America's proudest companies on the future of commercial aviation? Yeah, I think that's really significant. Um, it, it, you know, and maybe the future is uh, the the. A jet Zero or somebody else will eventually um, take over, and um, but it's it would it would be sad to think of um, Boeing as as a manufacturer whose whose time has passed. Um, companies certainly been tarnished of late, had its challenges, but you know this could be a way too to really revive things and uh, you know get. Get Boeing excited again about building airplanes. Um, bring in the smartest aerospace engineers and, and really get to work at uh, giving the world a product that would be game changing. I think it could happen. I think in many ways it's what Boeing needs to, uh, uh, to really recreate the, the magic that it used to have. But uh, it's got to happen. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and I think, as we've said, well, wait and see is really working against them now. Aircraft development takes a long time, but you got to start at some place. Uh, and if you if you don't start now, then you're really pushing it way into the future, and you're going to get further and further behind uh, the competitors. They're already there, Scott, and I bet they have engineers on property now who would love this assignment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, interesting discussion. So in the mailbag, Ben, an interesting question about the value of premium seats. Do you get what you pay for? Peter from St. Paul, Minnesota writes, hey guys, 
I'm a longtime listener, and your show is a highlight of my week. Your insight and thoughtful analysis is a breath of fresh air. Thanks, Peter. My question is about premium cabin pricing, particularly on domestic routes. With hotels, you can often get a larger room or even a suite with a modest upcharge, yet premium airline seats, often without significant added benefits, usually sell for multiple times the economy fare. An egregious example for me is Delta Comfort Plus, which offers no tangible benefits except 1% more legroom and an alcoholic beverage, yet can almost double the main cabin fare. And of course, there's domestic first class that costs four times more, but only gives you 50% more space and maybe a vending machine sandwich. If your answer is they price at what the market will bear, I would argue that if that were the case, there would be no free upgrades. If the answer is they want to save some premium seats for elite upgrades, how does the airline calculate the goodwill value created by the upgrade? Wouldn't they rather have $30 in cash than write off $700 of fare as an upgrade? I know I'm not the first person to ask this, but I'm sure smarter people than me have thought about it a lot. Please enlighten me. So, Ben, I'll put the question to you, but I would quibble with Peter's assessment of Comfort Plus and other extra legroom rows. In Delta's case, standard coach is 31 to 32-inch seat pitch, and Comfort Plus is usually 34 inches. So it's <laughs> more like a 6% uh, increase. Uh, but if you're tall, those extra 2 to 3 inches are huge. But besides that, what do you think? Are the small benefits a good value? And how do airlines price premium products? It's a great question, Peter. I think the challenge you're having is thinking it should look like hotel pricing. Hotel pricing, they have a fixed number of rooms, but the booking curve is much shorter. People start buying airline tickets many weeks before the flight. Hotels book closer to the day of stay. What a premium seat on an airline is worth doesn't relate to a hotel upgrade. What matters is how can the airline make the most revenue within the fixed tube. If the seat's gonna be empty, charging you 30 bucks for the upgrade is a better answer. But if you're someone whose company would pay the full rate to upgrade and you get the $30 upgrade, then the company lost that difference. Airlines call that dilution, selling you something that you would have paid more for. So my guess is there are flights Delta flies where they make a mistake not selling you a $30 upgrade, but there are others where selling you a $30 upgrade would be too expensive for them. And on the whole, they can probably make that argument. 
So good luck getting upgraded. The best thing you can do is get your Delta credit card, charge everything you buy on it, then get the upgrade to Comfort Plus that way. Yeah, I would just add, Ben, that I think you're right. It's it's not a hotel situation. And I think one of the dynamics is that uh, for a lot of people, the standard coach seat has been shrunk so much. Uh, not the seat itself, but the but the seat pitch, the the leg room essentially. That it, it's really not um, acceptable, and they've they've made the product so uncomfortable um, that some people feel like they have to buy the a premium seat um, just to get an acceptable product, um, and and that's the difference. Or for some airlines, thirty inch seat pitch, twenty eight seat pitch. Um, that's really rough on the knees for for some people. Uh, so I I do think it's you know it'd be like if the hotel had standard rooms with uh, single beds or or cots or you know something even smaller. Sleep on the couch. Oh, you want a queen bed? Um, well, that's that's a that's an upcharge. Um, and uh, the spirit hotel. A spirit hotel, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, but, you know, hotels haven't taken away the showers, um, and so you don't have to pay extra for the shower. Uh, it, it's um, the, you know, getting upgraded to a suite is nice. You feel good about it. There's there's no necessity in there. Um, and I think, uh, I think for some people, um, a, a premium seat, premium economy on a, on a long distance, um, uh, international flight. Um, you know, coach is just painful, um, standard coach in, in many cases. And, uh, and if they, if they have the disposable income, um, they're going to do it. And that, that has created a market and airlines, I think have been a lot smarter about pricing the, the premium product at, at levels that people are willing to pay. Um, it, you know, it used to be a first class ticket was 20 times as, as much, but if I get an offer for an upgrade to first class for hundred dollars, you know, $150, um, for some people that's, that's a good deal. And they realize that that's the only way they're going to get the upgrade because the days of the free upgrade are pretty well gone. Um, so uh, it's a really interesting dynamic and, and I think, um, Cynically, you can look at it and say airlines have have really done a good job at creating the premium product by making their standard product really uncomfortable. Great points, guy. And I would wrap this up with hypothetical. If we could ask a thousand business travelers whether on their next trip they'd rather have a nicer airline seat or a bigger hotel room, mm. a majority would say the airline seat. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But that's because a standard hotel room is perfectly functional and acceptable to them. That's right. Well, thank you all. Again, thanks to all our veterans. I'm the son of a veteran, and I'm proud of that, too. I am as well. That's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>
This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.